Forge family. When we began 1 Timothy chapter 6 last time, Paul aimed his encouragements to Timothy regarding the slaves and masters in the churches in Ephesus. To the former, the slaves that had become Christians and followers of Jesus Christ, they were to honor their masters regardless of the master's spiritual stance. As for the slave owners, their masters, they were also to relate to their slaves with respect. However, spiritual relationships did not change the civil reality between slave and master. Paul did not set out to overturn the practice of slavery in the empire. Knowing that the life of Christ lived out by both master and slave toward one another would bring peace and joy into the equation. Slavery would pass away one relationship at a time. Next, Paul turns his uh, sharp insights regarding um, the false teachers on the evidence that he saw of their heresies spreading ways in Ephesus. He saw them as deeply interested, obsessed even. Uh, My English text says it was a morbid curiosity, a morbid focus on controversial questions and disputes over words from which arose envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between such men who taught false doctrines. These false teachers saw teaching as their uh, means toward financial gain. And they also saw it as a way to step up, to climb into a position of civil and religious power and scholarly authority. That reality is still with us. Okay? There's still people who teach um, heterodox things, who, who really see it as their career path. Paul turns to the Ephesian church to address those who passionately desire a way to swiftly become wealthy. Forty plus years ago, there was a certain uh, group of um, entrepreneurs who made a significant push into the church life uh, where we were attending, and they were trying to recruit other um, Christians into multi-level marketing programs and in the selling systems, and to recruit their friends as well. Sudden significant income was a powerful incentive, but the presentations to potential partners blurred the lines between friendship, church membership, and money-making. Jan and I looked at each other and stepped back. Now, Paul, in the text again, quotes other Uh, scholars, other philosophers who stated that one cannot take their wealth with them when they die. Let's pray. God of peace, we would be like you, not vulnerable to angry words directed at us as we hold high the name of Jesus. For two millennia, there have been counterfeit teachings that have run parallel to the gospel message of salvation through grace by faith. We need you, Lord, to help us discern what is happening in the larger body of Christ and in applying the mind of Christ. We would follow your ways, not those of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as Paul moves to conclude this epistle to Timothy, 
he begins in chapter 6, verse 11, reversing the direction that some in Ephesus have chosen. To Timothy, he says, but flee from these things. Excuse me. Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Another way to say that is, quote, Timothy, don't get caught in the web of heterodoxy that embraces bitter words and the love of money, unquote. Okay, flee from those influences continuously. It's a a present tense verb. You just keep doing that. And instead, you run swiftly after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now here, Timothy is accorded a title, man of God. That, That was the title given to Moses, to Samuel, to Shemaiah each of which had received a message from God. Warned to flee, then challenged to pursue. Timothy could discern the black and white of twisted doctrine and greed. Upright living in righteousness before men and God leads the way. Then Paul urged Timothy to continue in godliness. Now we've, we've been um, seeing this word eusebia in Greek, this term godliness here seven previous times through First Timothy. This is the eighth and final time in the epistle, but it points to a clear and obedient relationship with God. <clears throat> Timothy is to pursue patience. Here, using the Greek word hupomone, a compound word meaning to remain under. And it speaks of one who stays his or her course under trials in a manner that honors God. Lastly, Paul says to Timothy to be gentle. From the word, word uh, that the root word praotes, this gentleness is one of humility before God, willing to accept gladly what He has for you, and willing to accept less than your due from men. <clears throat> Next, Paul turns in verse twelve to encouragement of Timothy as the pastor over the churches in Ephesus. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now here, Paul's background from education in the University of Tarsus. This was on the south coast of Asia Minor in in the city in which he was born and grew up. The University of Tarsus had a higher reputation academically than even the University of Athens. Okay, and in that setting, he was also exposed to the Greek games, to the Olympic-style games that were staged every year. And so he reverts to those terms. The first two words for fight here in the text is drawn from the boxing arena. Greek boxers wore fur-lined gloves or ox, you know, or or hand wraps, uh, the outside of which were oxhide that had been hardened, okay, sewn into the gloves or the or the hand wraps were metal bars and weights. To go up against another fighter took great courage and skill. Opponents were chosen at random, and there were no weight classes. The last fighter standing was the one who won. The modern equivalent might be brass knuckles 
and rolls of quarters in your hands, able to deliver devastating blows while moving like a dancer. What, what came to mind in this description to me was the, the character, if you will, uh, played out in various movies and fight scenes, uh, the man named Bruce Lee, the Kung Fu specialist, who could deliver devastating blows and then just dance away from any uh, other uh, blows that were directed at him. The second word that Paul uses here for Timothy to get ready to defend the faith is the word that speaks of a fight in terms of the beauty of such practiced technical excellence. Picture Timothy being swiftly ready, both mentally and spiritually, quick on his feet, able to use the weapons of spiritual warfare with swift effectiveness like speaking the truth in love, turning the other cheek, taking every thought captive, coming in the opposite spirit, etc. All of that to express the good fight of faith. And then Paul urges Timothy to lay hold upon, to seize the reality of the experience of eternal life in the present <clears throat> and the expectation of eternal life in the future. <clears throat> Excuse me. That eternal life called out to Timothy to draw him to the place of making a good confession of faith before many witnesses. Timothy's grip on eternal life in Christ will empower him in the constant good fight for the faith. To help Timothy realize the seriousness of the charge to seize heaven and fight the good fight. Verse 13 to 16 say, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and most and blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion amen paul's doxology here urges timothy to remember in the presence of god his own good confession of faith at the time of, of timothy's baptism the laying on of hands and the recognition that he was indeed a messenger of god he was to remember the good confession made by Jesus himself before Pontius Pilate, speaking the truth that he was indeed king of the Jews, son of God. Timothy is commanded to keep that commandment without spot or blame. He was to keep that command until the coming of Christ for his church, the bride of Christ. There is the expectation of his coming that wafted like a sweet fragrance through the, the churches in Paul's day. And that coming of Christ in the clouds was to be at the time that Christ set. He who was and is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The risen Lord who was and is expected is the only one who possesses immortality, life eternal. He alone is deathless and self-existent his blinding purity is unapproachable 
whether with human morals or human minds. He is worthy of all rightly fearful esteem and reverence. Reverence. We, we're to lay ourselves at his feet. <clears throat> his power is shown through his mighty acts and creation. His majesty and kingship stand above all. He is also the one who dwells in unapproachable light. Those men in the Old Testament who were exposed to the searing flash of God's presence, his Shekinah, were often instructed to turn away, for no man can fully see God and live. It is to this holy God and his Son, Christ Jesus, to whom Timothy answers, and to whom the churches in Ephesus answer. See, the believers in Ephesus were in the midst of a pagan worship center that honored the, the goddess Diana, or the, the Roman version, if you will, Artemis, and Nero, the sea and Caesars as deities, as well as a host of temples to worship gods who were not God. <clears throat> the God of the churches in Ephesus is the supreme Lord of the universe. At this point in the text, it is as if Paul shouts out, To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now in this chapter, Paul had already warned about aspiring to wealth. Now Paul adds three more verses for Timothy to pass on to those in the churches who were already wealthy. In those ancient times, agriculture on vast tracts of land. Remember that quote from one of the Monty Python movies? You know, great, you know, great tracts of land. They were managed by slave labor forces who grew the crops and raised flocks and herds, and then they processed those products into a value-added, shippable product. And that was the source of the old money. The rising importance of the port of Miletus, just to the west of Ephesus, and the trade routes opening to the east had created new money for many in Ephesus who were traders, brokers, and bankers. Some of both forms of wealth, the old and the new, were present in the churches of Ephesus. Paul's words to them by Holy Spirit were, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to share, be ready to share, <clears throat> storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now here are both wrong and right responses to wealth held by brothers and sisters. The wrong response is an arrogant attitude. Yo, look what I've accomplished. And second, it's wrong for brothers and sisters to make wealth the hope of their lives. Perhaps the most striking example in scripture, and my perception here, is <clears throat> was that attitude of, look what I've accomplished, you might see in the, in the account of King David, who numbered the people of Israel, specifically the armies of Israel. That profoundly irked God, and he sent a plague into the midst of the people. Second, I suggest the parable of Jesus, of the rich man 
who had such a vast harvest that he needed to build bigger barns, and then turned and said to himself, Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, for you have much stored up for the future. In the parable, Jesus, Jesus responds and says, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will be all this that you've stored up? See, Paul knew from the history and by observation how vulnerable wealth could be. The ten tribes of Israel were swept away with all their accumulated wealth and possessions by the Assyrians, and they just they disappear into the other lands. <clears throat> 125 years later comes the Babylonian attack on Jerusalem, and all of Judah is gathered up with all their stored-up treasures and that which was in the Temple of Solomon, all the gold implements for worship, Yahweh, and that was taken immediately into the, uh, the treasury in Babylon. The Roman Empire had experienced civil wars, resulting in vast wealth transfer from the losers to the winners. Living in the wrong city could result in instant poverty. In the last two decades, I've been told and somewhat experienced that there were many Christian families who had invested in commercial businesses, buildings, construction projects, and residences at the start of 2007, only to have their investments melt away to nothing as the economy collapsed. The uncertainty of riches is still with us. <clears throat> it was this sense of hold all things loosely, that Paul was trying to transmit through Timothy to those who were well off in the churches in Ephesus. It was God himself who richly supplied what was needed and what was enjoyed. The word to the wealthy was to be generous, open-handed, open-hearted, expressed in good works and shared resources. In so doing, the wealthy would lay out a godly foundation for themselves so that they could seize take hold of and grasp life that is life indeed, eternal life in Christ right now. Paul turns to his closing remarks to Timothy. Oh, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of which is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and have gone astray from the faith. Grace be to you. The words of Paul coming come from the, the banking world of his day. The word guard what has been entrusted to you is taken from the word paratheke, which spoke of a sum on deposit in a bank, in your name, or with a broker, you know, a brokerage account, money you've invested. Paul uses the same word in 2 Timothy chapter 1. So what was that which was on deposit that Timothy had received and was responsible for? He was to discern and resist false teachers and, and simultaneously keep his life pure as he proclaimed the truth of Christ, risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of God the Father, ever making intercession for us. Timothy was to avoid the constant worldly chatter. 
An example of that to me was the response I got on returning from Ethiopia, where I'd seen awesome, creative miracles in crusades in the town of Nazareth. Uh, it's populated by Muslims and Christians, and they live together in peace. And so when we had crusades there, there were amazing miracles. When I described back to my brothers, sisters here in America, what I had seen, one of the responses that I got was, well, how about them giants this year? There it looks like another run at the World Series. I mean, I was slack-jawed. <clears throat> Literally, Paul says, stay away from unhallowed and empty mouthings. Second, Timothy was to avoid any falsely named, falsely honored knowledge. Seventy years ago, scholars were still attributing this false knowledge to the Gnostic heresy. But discoveries of manuscripts and archaeological findings anchor the Gnostic heresy in the second century, not at the time of Paul's writings. A pseudo-knowledge was that which was being spread by the false teachers in Ephesus, that they could, others in Ephesus could gain spiritual power and authority by you know, eating kosher or avoiding certain foods and drinks and not marrying, etc. You know, they, the, the point, it was false knowledge that, that uh, Timothy was to address. But unfortunately, some of the churches had embraced it and wandered away from the faith. Paul closes this epistle with his phrase, Grace be with you. <clears throat> All the riches, resources, and strength which were undeserved, but freely given in Christ by Holy Spirit, is poured out on and into Timothy. Forge family, all of you, all of you, fill a leadership slot, whether in the market, in industry, in parenting, as a student, as an older brother, older sister in families, in marriage, and in the ecclesia, which is expressed here by Forge Church. Take these exhortations to heart. Practice them so that you learn them fully by the experience of trusting in Holy Spirit. Learn to discern what is godly and what is godless, what is righteous and what is darkness. Clearly, the spreading abroad of critical race theory is anchored in darkness, in racism itself, and stands directly opposed to the grace of God on all peoples, who all bear the same genetic codes, regardless of skin color. That's one example of pseudoscience, pseudo-knowledge. <clears throat> Another would be the supposed genetic codes for living a homosexual life being present at birth. Third, you know, we've had over 160 years of obedient, uh, excuse me, of, of pseudoscience in the form of Darwinian evolution. So forge, be alert. Be disciplined in the obedience to the scriptures and fight the good fight of faith with the beauty and excellence of practice and trust in him whose blood sets you free from sin and darkness. Let's pray. Lord, Ford's Church calls on your name. We too live surrounded by those who worship false gods and false teachings. You are our shield. You are our provision. You provide discernment and resources as we live and move and have our being. <clears throat> Lord, we would see a massive awakening amongst those who are lost in darkness 
and an explosive revival among the members of the body of Christ. Prepare us to lead as you have gifted us and trained us. We lift our hearts and thanks to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge, I love you. God bless you. We'll see you soon.